Thank you, Ali. Thank you to Paul, Ban, Songsters, Singing Company for all the beautiful input this morning. It's been very much appreciated and very relevant too. We humbly bow. That's beautiful. Thank you. Revelation. What was I thinking? Because of its uh, intricate language and because of its symbolic language, you know that Revelation is not always easy to read because we can look at these words. We don't quite know what we're reading sometimes. We can read the words and we have our own sort of human immediate visions and images, uh, but it's not easy for 21st century people to grasp. We're not used to this kind of literature. But people in the ancient world were more used to it because the main literature that they read was uh, so much in Jesus' time, it was scripture itself. So they were more accustomed to the complex nature of apocalyptic writing. So they knew what to expect from apocalyptic writing. Uh, but we can learn so much on this particular Sunday, the end of our church year, uh, for ourselves. So let's explore just for a few moments this morning. Uh, the book of Revelation is often called the Apocalypse of John. Just for a few seconds, turn to the person next to you. What do you understand by the word apocalypse? Just for a few seconds. Okay. If you um, go onto uh, the internet and you Google in apocalypse, these are the, pretty much the first pictures you get. Did that match with what you said to each other? Pretty much? Okay. It's kind of right because that is actually based on revelation, it's not based on the meaning of apocalypse. The word apocalypse actually means the revealing or the unveiling. One of the most important verses is in the Bible is Daniel 7.13. Let's just have those up now. Here they come. Uh, this is 9 and 10. You see the parallels with Revelation in the, in the yellow writing. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair like purest wool. And then if we can have the next slide, that's verses 13 and 14 in yellow. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. It's very important scripture. Daniel's vision is foreseeing the ascension of Jesus and his subsequent enthronement as king forever. Way back there in the book of Daniel. And then, of course, John picks up the theme in our readings today. So John is there. He's on the island of Patmos. Some say it was a prison island. But he, whatever, he was, he was certainly incarcerated in, in some way on this little island. He knew he was going to die soon. He knew that the political situation, uh, the political background was horrific. The Romans were an oppressive power. 
Nero was a cruel emperor. He was pretty hopeless as well. And when you look into it deeper, you find that Revelation has many symbols and analogies that speak against the whole Roman system. There are symbols and analogies, if we were to go into it in depth, bit by bit, and unpack it all, it would take a jolly long time. But you would see that it speaks against the governmental, the political system, speaks against the social system, and he also speaks very much against the economic system, which at that time was very corrupt. It is clever anti-Roman writing, as well as being this incredible picture of uh, future things. It is anti the abuse of power. That's why it's so relevant to this Sunday. John is writing, it is anti the abuse of power. It is anti the brutal forces that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 to 80. And so for John and the first century Christians, the end, such as the pictures you saw in the Google images, the end was always looked as though it was going to be nigh. So how is it that a bunch of followers of this Jewish rabbi who'd ministered some 60 to 80 years before this writing survived such violent persecution? The odds were heavily stacked against the future of this primitive Christian church. I always think it's miraculous. If there'd been nothing to Jesus, it would have fizzled out within a few years. If there'd been nothing to his whole ministry over that three years, it would have fizzled out. As I've said before, if you had to gamble all your possessions on either the Roman power surviving or this funny Christian expression surviving, you'd have gone for the Roman power any time. They were powerful. They had armies. They had political clout. And so John tries to encourage his humble little Christian fellowships all around the place by saying, this is the end. But it's not the end. This is the end, but it's not the end. And if ever you've sat with anybody who's drawing their last breath, as I have a number of times, there's a message. This is the end, but it's the beginning. So in Revelation, the curtain is drawn aside just a little, and we get glimpses of these almost indescribable visions. Here's, here's verse 7 of chapter 1. Look, he is coming with the clouds, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. So what John is doing here is he is assuring his readers that their current persecution and deep suffering has been defeated underfoot by Christ, who is king of heavens and the earth. Emperor Nero is not king. The emperor Domitian was not king. He was a pretty bad one as well. Their military commander, who was a man called Vespasian, he was a baddie. He was not king either. Boris Johnson is not king. Nor is Vladimir Putin. Nor is Donald Trump. Not king. Not king. He who was rejected, who had all of that power, he who was rejected is king. 
and will be seen by every eye. Now, we often think, here he comes, you know, coming from the clouds, every eye will see him, and we look up and we say, I wonder if I'll see him here, here in Oxford Street, will I, will I see him? But in the Bible, I often means understanding. You have to understand first what is happening. I is about the understanding. In other words, the lights will go on in the hearts and minds of even those who have rejected him. They will understand what their own wrongdoing has meant before the king. They will, as different translations say, wail, mourn, lament. But they will wail, mourn, and lament not because of what their, their, their fear of what God might do to them, because that's another theological misconception. It is because of the sin that they have committed. They will mourn their own wrongdoing. They will, as different translations say, wail, mourn, and lament. But they will acknowledge him, and that acknowledgement is an inevitable consequence of people truly understanding, some for the very first time, the claims of Calvary upon their lives. They will see his cross. It's kind of what the singing company sang, that, that same message, really. Today, this speaks of the importance of taking seriously those claims for ourselves. How often in a busy day do we stop and reflect on the triumph of Christ for us? What time do we make for those prayers and words that speak into the depth of our being as his subjects? What does Christ's kingly reign mean in our daily lives? Is there a conscious recognition of the fact that you are a child of a king whose kingdom, as Penny prayed, is like no other? Can we see and understand this? Pontius Pilate couldn't. In John 19.10, Pilate said to Jesus, I have the power. I have the power to free you. I have the power to crucify you. But he handed over Jesus to the people. He couldn't even exercise that power in the end. And so they stand there and he hands them and he says three words. Behold your king. Do with him what you will. The history of the world is often told in the stories of kings and kingdoms and people grappling for or holding on to power. But Jesus didn't meet those expectations. In so many of his words and actions, he turned human ideas on their heads. Many times in the New Testament, we have stories about Jesus and stories he told which turned traditional thinking about God and life upside down. It was a theologian, Karl Barth, who said, the New Testament tradition does not speak only about this royal man, it speaks from him. Jesus asks for fresh perspectives and new starts, not for the sake of being different or controversial, but for the sake of the flourishing of the kingdom of God. There's a lot of dry patches in the church, but people don't get it. People didn't get it in those days, still don't today. Because Jesus reveals that the greatest power is found in the greatest humility. But try telling that to leaders of all kinds today. That's not how they think. 
As the church, we can show the world a king who does not lust for power, but who is described as humble of heart. The church worships a king who does not want a crown of domination, but lovingly accepts a crown of thorns in service to others. Because you see, Jesus did not make himself king. He was a king before he came. And that's what we'll be seeing in our Advent stories, I'm sure, in the next few weeks. He was a king before he came. Gold, frankincense and myrrh for the different roles, the different functions that he gave. He was a king as he stood before Pilate. He is king of kings today. He is king of kings forever. And that's why it's no surprise that Pilate says far more than he realizes when he says, Behold your king. So if all this is true, and we can call Christ our king, then we are called to follow that radical way of serving rather than being served. Radical way of not being visible for the sake of being visible. Not marching the street because we're Regent Hall. But saying to people, there is a king who is gracious and great, but who is humble. And if we follow that example, then there's hope for unity and peace in the current mess of the world. Christ being king is not about his masculinity. He was certainly born as a male of the species, but he was a servant king who called men and women to be his companions. He told Pilate that his kingship of, is not of this world. It is kingship that first laid aside majesty to be born in human form, but then it had to empty itself still further. He had to empty himself also of the first century cultural masculine privilege. Then he proclaimed and modelled that in the kingdom of God there is neither male nor female. He is the king of absolute equality and absolute hospitality. There must be an amen around the room somewhere. There must be. And we need this kind of king. Someone to put things right. Someone to lead with humility. A king to speak and lead with the grace and honesty that, re that reveals true power. Because he knows who he is. He does not have to lord it over anybody. And that's true of any leader. We need that kind of king. Someone to put things right. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now I must jump to Revelation chapter 5. Because this introduces, you can't have Christ the King Sunday without this chapter. It introduces us to the striking image of a Lion of Judah and the Lamb upon the throne. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is also the King who deserves to sit on the throne as judge of all people. And this links earlier with the quote from Henri Nguyen. He spoke about looking at the humiliated and victorious Christ. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Lions have a regal image. They had authority. You never hear of a kangaroo king or a wombat king. You never hear of the snake king. You never hear 
well, I, I've never heard, maybe there's children's stories with these things in, but I don't know. You never hear that. But when you think of a Lion King, of course, it's a, it's a cultural reference that we have today. But the lion had the power to destroy or to preserve. Look at those David Attenborough programs. You know what I mean. But Jesus is also the lamb. This Easter image of the sacrificial lamb. This same person carries that within him. And the cross is the ultimate place where Jesus redefines power and authority. Redefines our identity and speaks our theology. So remember that we're also a part of the wider Christian church. We are called to the service of others. We are called to work to change oppressive systems and human structures that fail to serve the weak and the needy and work against relieving troubled lives and broken spirits. God calls us to take the united resources that he has given the church. We cannot work and minister in isolation as a Salvation Army or as a Corps. The Salvation Army cannot do it totally alone. We are to use those resources for the good of all, to alleviate the plight of the weak and the powerless, together with our colleagues and our friends, the company of the redeemed. I think I've said before, there's no Salvationists in heaven, just the company of the redeemed. So finally, on this Sunday, we decide afresh to show that Jesus is King by having the daily courage and commitment to become more and more a part of the reign of God. We are his children, building his kingdom with him day by day, those good deeds that we do, those good things that we speak, those great prayers that we pray. And when he comes... So the full extent of his eternal majesty is realized. Every eye, every heart responds one way or another. But you and I, be glad, rejoice. We are part of his kingdom now, yes? And this gives meaning to your life every day, however tough it gets. However much you, you wish things would change, however down you're getting, you have meaning, even though it doesn't feel like it, because you are part of the reign of God. And we know not only the joy of considering the needs of others, but let's be a bit selfish occasionally and realize that we can, in our prayers and in our quiet times, delight that we are in the kingdom of God and we are serving the King of all kings. Amen? Amen. Every blessing to you, my friends. Let's just pray together. We're going to sing, You laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those you created. You took all my guilt and shame. When you died and rose again, now, today, you reign in heaven and earth exalted. <laughs>